to The Green Rush, a podcast about the intersection of cannabis, the capital markets, and culture. On a weekly basis, hosts Ann Donahoe and Lewis Goldberg of KCSA Strategic Communications speak with the business leaders, financial experts, cultural icons, legislators, and generally interesting people moving the cannabis industry forward. Today, our hosts are speaking with Dr. John Oram, the CEO and founder of NUG, one of the strongest brands in the nation's largest cannabis market of California. NUG is a vertically integrated company offering award-winning branded products and recently began opening up its own retail shops in Northern California. So don't sit back, lean forward. Now on to our interview with Lewis Ann and Dr. John Oram. Hi, Ann. Hi, Lewis. You know, it's funny. We've gone through this like string of like not recording together and now we're back to recording together. And I don't know. I'm, 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 I don't Who's know. luckier than you? Who, who, who luckier than you're right. Thank you. Thank you. You brought me back to center. I appreciate that. So before we talk about, um, our guest that we're going to talk to today, I have to rave about um, two things I did this week that just blew my mind. The first was this past Sunday, um, which was October 13th. My wife and I went and saw David Byrne on Broadway. And it was one of the coolest, most uh, amazing artistic experiences I've ever gone to, been through. It was just like like I miss I, Broadway. Oh, but it That's wasn't one of just the biggest Broadway. things I miss about New York. He was so good and his band was amazing and he just uh, like it's a limited run and it is not just talking head stuff I and mean, he played five or six talking head songs but it was like oh it I'm thinking a, it's a concert. I'm oh, thinking yeah. it was a no, like it's a Broadway on Broadway. Show. It is a Broadway oh, show. It's okay. on Broadway. Okay. It's on 44th Street and he puts this mix between visual and dance and music and it was like it was it was overwhelming it was fantastic and then last night my wife and i who are leading our best lives went to dinner <laughs> at david boulet's restaurant where andrew weil um gave uh, he actually helped write the menu which was uh, fantastic um, and it was all about anti-inflammatory foods. And then he gave a talk afterwards. Um, and and he actually spent a good amount of time talking about the relationship between the endocannabinoid system and and inflammation. Um, and it was really fascinating. Let's get him on. It's funny you should mention that. I asked him, and he said yes. So we'll see. But... Sometime soon, we may have Dr. Andrew Weil on talking about the intersection of mind-body and the use of plant-based medicines, cannabis, and others to to heal the world. It's really like this is a uh, probably the most influential doctor there is out there. So you know, he makes Dr. Oz look like a poser. <laughs> I digress. Hey, let's start the pod. Well, before we do that, the guy that we're talking to today is Dr. John Oram from a company called Nug, which is a vertically integrated California-only cannabis company that's focused on infused products. Um, 
really fascinating, beautiful packaging, great taste. Yeah, if you're in California, you definitely know this brand. Yeah. So, and and I think one of the interesting things about this is we have talked to now a lot of California-only companies, from NorCal to Dianamed. Um, there are, and now Nug, it's really interesting to see how California really is trying to be the crucible of the creation of national brands. So, We're the shit. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> you are the shit. Well done. <laughs> All right. So with that, let's start our conversation with Dr. John Oram from Nug. Dr. Oram, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. My let's, pleasure. Great to be here. Awesome. So let's let's jump right into the conversation. Um, I've seen you talk about how Nug. Um, of which you are the CEO, is both a cannabis brand and a cannabis company. How do you think about that? How do you think about the difference between brand and company, and, and, and how are you focusing on the brand side? Well, that's a good question, and, and some of that is just semantics, and, and but words matter, especially when you're trying to brand yourself, so um, it is a good question. We, we are a vertically integrated company, and we completely control the process from seed to sale. And so I'm trying to build strong messaging around that and trying to let the consumer know that because we can control the whole process, that we can deliver a very uh, consistent and uh, high quality product uh, uh, to the consumer. And so that's where brand comes in. How, you know, how do you, you know, a company is one thing, a company is what does the work but a brand is really the outward expression of that. And it is what the consumer sees and identifies with. So if I can start to meld what we do with that outward expression of who we are, um, I think that's getting the right message to the consumer and helping them really identify quality with our products through the brand. And, and in terms of the brand, how would you describe the Nug brand? Well, there's... A couple facets. There's the the Nug brand today, and then there's the Nug brand of where we want to be. And uh, and and unfortunately, there's a, a lot of friction between that. And most of that friction is is regulations and banking and just the state of cannabis affairs and in, in the industry today. Uh, but where we are today, uh, our core demographic is uh, individuals uh, 24 to 34 years old, largely our consumer base. Well, it's about 60% male. Um, so, you know, that's close to 50-50 in terms of male and female. But we are, we do skew a little bit more to the younger demographic. And that's by design uh today the those are the individuals that spend the that are that are frequenting dispensaries and spending their money on cannabis products but we also uh, understand where the market is trending and we also understand that there's a need to attract new consumers and other age demographics in the future. So the challenge for us is how do we maintain the the brand identity and brand loyalty with our current demographic and 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 not lose them and still offer very good products and very good services to them while we uh, can while we still pivot a little bit and start to attract a broader demographic. And, and we we need to be careful in that. It can't be sort of the face the 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 case of Facebook where uh, when 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 uh, you know when younger generations see their parents on Facebook, then they ditch Facebook. We we don't <laughs> want that to happen. So there's some challenges there. 
Well, it's hard to be all things to all people. And as um, a single state operator in California, do you have designs on building a national brand? We do. Yes, yes, we, we absolutely do. Uh, today, we're very much focused on California. This is a, a very dynamic market. Uh, it's a large market. We need to get a strong foothold here, and then we'll start our expansion. Uh, we are currently in conversations on expansion nationwide and even internationally, uh, but we're taking those slowly and very strategically um, and again, operationally, just focusing on California. We feel if we can develop a very strong brand here uh, that people can identify with and even link towards a California lifestyle, we think that that is going to help us move the brand uh, across the nation and, and even internationally. And, and no, no, I, I stepped on you. I haven't done that in a long time, so go ahead. I forgot my question. <laughs> I, well, Go ahead. I'll ask it then. So brand growth international. Well, no, yeah. it's it's from a brand perspective. If you're looking at other states, right? If if the objective is to grow and we have to work within the current structure, the regulatory framework, is it a license model or like are you going to say, okay, we're going to build our own, you know, another vertically integrated, basically a whole new vertically integrated company in Colorado or in Illinois or in Massachusetts, or are you going to say? We, we know what the brand is. We have SOPs on how to produce our products, and we're going to just license it. We're going to license our SOPs, our, our brand, to another operator. How, how are you thinking about it from that perspective? Yes, it's it's more of the latter. Uh, we we look forward to the day where inter, interstate commerce can happen. Uh, so I think that's also a good a good reason why focusing on California and making sure all of our systems are really solid and all of our infrastructure is solid here, because I do see a day in the future where we could potentially ship products from California, but we know that's not the reality today. So how do you go multi-state uh, or, or even internationally? And how do you do that um, in a cost-effective manner? You know, we are not capitalized like some of these public companies. We can't just go and buy licenses all over the, the place and just do, you know, and, and, and just spend money to, to move ourselves state to state. So for us, uh, it's, it's while we're developing um, a, strong, a strong market uh, uh, position in California, California, we leverage that into, yes, licensing deals. But we don't want these to just be hands-off licensing deals where we say, you know, here's the SOPs, uh, see you later. We do want to get involved. Uh, we want to have our own employees in, in these uh, areas to, you know, monitor quality control, make sure all of the products are going out as they should. Um, we we are likely, we will likely be centralizing a lot of the brand control and the marketing aspects here in California. So even if we are operating and, and uh, distributing products in other states, we want the all of the control of the brand to happen here at headquarters. So uh, those are the kind of considerations we're talking about. You guys are, are privately held at the moment, correct? Um, and so... Can you talk a little bit about um, what it's like going out and raising money, especially in this environment on October 11th, 2019? <laughs> yes, uh, it's not e you. It's not easy <laughs> raising money in the cannabis space. You you would think it would be, uh, especially with all the hype that's around. Um, 
but and and when we started, so here I'll, I'll back up a little bit. We've been privately held and privately funded since day one, and largely by just friends and family. We have had uh, some creative real estate deals that have helped us to grow um, and helped us to get our infrastructure in place, and, th and that was fantastic. But then it, we, you know, sometime early last year, we realized, you know, look, the marketplace is is going crazy. Other companies are raising all kinds of money. Uh, we're going to need some money to compete. So uh, in early 2018, we went out with a uh, a Series A offering. Uh, and a private placement memorandum, and we were seeking $10 million. And we traveled all over all over the U.S., and we went to Canada. And at that time, most of the interest with investors was uh, how, how and when are you going to go public? It was just, they just expected they just assumed, that this yeah. was a... But yeah, they just expected that this was a round to, to go public. And that is not our objective. We want to build a sustainable company with strong business fun fundamentals. And you would think that investors would love that. But at the time, they didn't. They really, they didn't. It was tough to raise money to build a strong uh, long-term business. Uh, it was easier to raise money if you were to say, hey, we're going to go public next week. And, uh, you know, this is what it's going to look like. Um, so anyway, we 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 fared through that. It took us about, uh, I don't know, 10 months to finally close that round for the reasons I, I discussed. And, and also, um, you know, there was some changes in the marketplace during that. So it, it was problematic. Uh, but yes, we did close and we actually were oversubscribed. We ended up closing at 15 million instead of 10 million. And that's put us just in a great position. We've used that money uh, to start scaling, uh, well, to start our scaling. So we've been developing new dispensaries. We've been changing some of our infrastructure around cultivation and manufacturing, and we've really been putting a lot of effort into uh, building out our distribution systems. Um, so the money is going to good use, and we will be looking to do another round of funding probably in the next six, six to eight months. You just described a large part of your supply chain, you know, how you're growing, how you're processing, and your distribution. But, but because you're you know, an infused products company. And I've tried your matcha infused chocolate and among the best things I've ever had, you know, it, it, it was, it was absolutely, it was delicious. Um, but your supply chain goes beyond just cannabis, right? It goes into the matcha, the chocolate, all of the other elements that you're, you're, you're using, you know, the, the, our industry, the cannabis industry, you know, is supposed to be a quote unquote green industry, um, how do you think about supply chain for all, for the entire thing, whether it be, you know, how you're growing your cannabis, how you're, you know, getting your chocolate or your matcha. Can you talk about that? Yes, of course. So supply chain for us has been a, a, diff, a different conversation than you would have in say a typical, uh, you know, consumer packaged goods world. Uh, we've had to build our supply chain. It didn't exist. I, it's not like I'm making a cookie and I can just go source some flour and I can choose between organic or non-organic or, and then go source, you know, the, the, the sugar and all of that. And to finally make a cookie, we, that didn't exist 10 years ago when we set out on this mission. So we had to build our supply chain. We had to build everything that we do. And uh, that's been tough and problematic and expensive, but it's been a core strength of ours. So by building our supply chain, we do control everything 
everything. We control the, 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 the costs, we control the quality, and we're able to focus in certain areas uh, to save, for example, to save water, we've implemented a, uh, a sophisticated and computer-controlled drip irrigation system for all of our irrigation. And we've conserved, I'd say, close to 60% of, 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 of our water utilization. So we're using 60% less water than we used to. That's great. We can do better, but that's great. Um, some of the other things, you know what? To be totally honest, it's difficult to bring in green practices and eco practices right now in the cannabis space because really the lar the regulations everyone is focused so much on regulations and the regulations around packaging in general in uh, specifically rather are very stringent around child safety tamper evidence and so we are limited to plastics i mean really with we, we have plastic bags we have plastic jars we have and it's just recently i'd say within the last couple months that we're starting to see child resistant uh packaging in more uh reusable and recyclable forms such as cardboard so we will be transitioning um but it's our focus has to be on compliance and regulatory compliance and and unfortunately that has not been uh, an eco-friendly option for us I'd like to talk a little bit about your background and, and your education. I mean, we're talking about, you know, how um, the cannabis industry is struggling with being this green industry. Um, and you've got a PhD in environmental chemistry. Um, and so I would imagine it must be difficult for you to kind of, you know, square that with with having to use all of this single use uh, plastic in the space. Um, can you can you, I guess, envision a future where, I guess, what does it look like a year from now or five years from now? Do you see, you know, fully biodegradable products or recyclable products in the market, or you think it's still too, too new for us to hope? Yeah. <laughs> that was a very, oh, don't take so away negative. our hope. Don't take away our hope. I didn't mean to be so negative with that question, but. <laughs> you know, there, that's a, that's a, a broader question. I, I think as, I think as the, um, what would I say, um, alternative materials world and specifically the, the recyclable and eco-friendly materials world develops, uh, you know, in general, uh, and they're able to make uh, better materials that uh, can, you know, preserve the quality of products while still having elements such as child, child uh, protection and, uh, you know, tamper evidency and reseal resealability. I think as that happens in just the normal consumer packaged goods world, we will bring be bringing those technologies into our world as well. I wish that we could innovate a little bit more in our space, and, and I do hope to, uh, and so that maybe cannabis can be the driver of some of that change. But um, to be honest, us, you know, NUG, and frankly, almost every operator in California is so focused on regulatory compliance, and that has been such an overhang and such a, a, a constrictor of innovation that I don't, you know, I don't see anything happening in the very, very near future. Um, but, you know, as we get better with our compliance, as the state sort of gets better enforcing compliance, I do think innovation will start to come about again. And, and when I say innovation, we should talk about this. Uh, when I say innovation, I'm talking not only about the packaging that, you know, the question you talked about, but we've seen very little product innovation in the space and yeah. largely because of the economic and regulatory world that we live in. You know, you look at the regulatory world that you're in in California. Has the state done a good job in promoting 
innovation or do you feel that the the regulatory regime in California is what it is and and it's not intended to stifle innovation but it's definitely not been there to promote it that yeah that's right you've got to think that that the regulators are not trying to stifle uh, purposefully stifle innovation uh, I don't think that's the case these are all good people and they're all well intentioned it's just that the regulations are just so draconian I mean we do things in duplicate and triplicate and and, and even and, and more uh, I mean we're printing out tons of pay, of paper uh, uh, manifests for you know certificate of authenticity and shipping manifests and invoice we have to have all that on paper we have to have uh, hard wet signatures I mean it's it's the world we live in right now we there we are internally working on tech tech solutions to reduce paper and there are some third-party softwares that are also trying to do this thing and regulatory perspective, we right now we have to be filling out paper, and we have to be burning paper, and we have to be packaging uh, and wrapping things in in plastics and and child protection, and we have to be affixing uh, barcodes and labels, and uh, it, it's really insane the number of touches every product gets uh, because of the regulations we're in. But but I do see that easing. Um, and, and, and to get to the point of your question, all of that burden, it's so the operational burden that we are under has slowed down innovation. We don't have the, the time, the money, the manpower to uh, push forward on innovation because we're still focused on, on checking the boxes on regulatory compliance. I want to shift. I mean, I still want to kind of stick with your education because I think it's really fascinating. Can you talk about how, um, but, but I want to take it in a direction of, of the actual product itself um, and the chemistry of making infused cannabis. By the way, that was um, a lot of fun to watch you do that and just to, to go watch me. to watch you circle that question. I did circle the question. I'm sorry, because I wanted to try to connect tissue. Maybe that wasn't, I didn't do that right. So <laughs> I want to talk about products and I want to talk about infused cannabis. Um, and one of my colleagues, um, I'm, I sit in California and um, one of my colleagues was um, trying to make homemade edibles and it just seemed like a hot mess um, and, and labor intensive and getting it right. And I mean, I, it just, it seems just very technical and complicated. Um, can you how do you how do you make how is what you do different from from some of the other brands out there like Kiva or Bang or other companies that that produce you know similar products but what makes you different sure okay uh so I have, to, I have to go back to my history a little bit and so yes I am a PhD in environmental chemistry and engineering and I founded one of the very first uh, cannabis specific laboratories in the country that was back in 2008 early 2009 I founded CW Analytical Laboratories, and we, we uh, again, that was my chemistry and analytical science that helped me build that. And I partnered with a, a, a PhD in, in uh, microbiology, and he built out the microbiology uh, part of the lab. From, from that lab, we learned about cannabis, and we, cannabis science. We had to do this stuff from the ground up. We had to develop basic fundamental methods for testing cannabis to see what's in it, how to process it, and and then eventually how to infuse. And that was, uh, you know, that took some time. We did some really good science and we did learn uh, how to infuse products quite well uh, back at that time. So now around 2010. Um, and at that time we were consulting for a lot of 
uh, brands, uh, companies in the space that were producing uh, edibles, chocolate bars and hard candies and lollipops and things like that. Um, I, I, I don't ever divulge the brands that I worked with at the time because that's, that's actually not relevant, but those brands are still around and still very strong in the marketplace. Um, but in the lab, what, so what I was learning and what I was teaching to other companies on how to infuse, I, it, it just piqued my own interest and I wanted to do something on my own. So that's when I spun out NUG or what eventually became NUG and I started making products, uh, infused products. And the, the approach we take that sets us apart from some of the other products in the space, again, this comes back to our vertical integration. We have plenty of supply. We have always had plenty of supply of raw materials. That has never been an issue for us. And that's always been very high quality raw materials. And then we've developed a, a, a just a very solid scientific extraction method that we can control and that we can repeat. And we produce uh, a very high quality live resin extract that then we can process further in, into what is commonly called a distillate in the space, mm -hmm. which is crystal clear. Uh, it's 90% plus THC or CBD, depending it is on what we're extracting. Uh, and it has no taste, no smell, nothing. It's crystal clear. That is what we use to in infuse our edibles. So when you eat a NUG product, you don't taste any cannabis. There's no bitterness. There's no back notes. There's nothing. You just taste the edible product itself. Hence the matcha, the chocolate matcha, which is, it was delicious. Yes, that's right. I'm glad you enjoyed that product. Yeah, and there's no can, cannabis flavor in there. Now, ma matcha tea is, you know, that's an acquired taste. Not everybody likes green tea and, and matcha. It's very grassy. It's very earthy. It's inherently bitter on its own. Uh, but you didn't, you didn't get that from the cannabis. That was from the tea itself. Uh, I drink a, a bowl of matcha every day. Um, and you know, it's, it's so good for you. Um, so think back to that first product you made and then think back to where you are today. So what was the first product that you, you manufactured and then looking at your suite of products today, what's your favorite? And I know we all have, you know, you, you can't say which is your favorite child, but in this instance, which is your favorite child? <laughs> um, Yes, yeah, so I have either directly, you know, developed through through my company or through consulting for others a whole suite of products. All uh, like I mentioned, hard candies, uh, chocolates, uh, some savory foods, uh, gummies. Uh, um, what is my favorite? What is my favorite? To be honest, I prefer the micro, and, and this may not be where, this is not where the current uh, core demographic of edible consumers are today, but I think this is where th the, the future is. I prefer the microdosed edibles. Uh, and by microdosed, I, I, yes. we define that as anything that's uh, two and a half milligrams of THC or less. Uh, we like those in, in, in easy uh, dosage forms. For example, single uh, gummies with two and a half milligrams each. If you want to eat five of them, go ahead. If you want one of them, that's fine too. Uh, I like to be able to titrate my own usage and I really dislike uh, some of the products that are out there that are hundred milligrams uh, um, and they, and, and it, they say, you know, if you want less then hey, just eat one little tenth of this corner. That's not the right approach. That's not the right approach. You mean you don't like the idea of somebody taking a baseball bat to the back of your head after you've eaten one chip? 
Exactly. Exactly. You know, you know, hey, and I think, you know, when you open a bag of Doritos, you want to eat the bag of Doritos. You don't want to just eat one chip. So I think your edible product should be similar. So they should be dosed in a form or in a way where you can actually enjoy the product and not worry about going, you know, to the moon and back. What do you think about drinks? You know, you look at the the Canopy Constellation investment and their investment in acreage, and that's a, a big bet on infused drinks. And we've spoken to to others in the space, and they're all in on drinks. And I'm not sold. So what what, are, what is your belief on on infused drinks? You might be the first person who told me they're not sold on drinks. And I, I, I don't want to put words into your mouth, but I think that you might not be sold because of the drinks you see in the marketplace today. There's really not a very good one in the marketplace. Uh, but I've seen some in R&D and I've tested some in R&D. There are some pretty exciting drinks coming coming uh, in the future. I, I do think that drinks, uh, beverages in general make a... Uh, are, are going to be a significant part of significant part of the market moving forward, but we have a lot of science to 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 get right. We have a lot of uh, education of the consumers to get right, That's and a, for, uh, so it is going to take some time. Yeah, I think you got it with the education part, right? You know, your your cannabis consumer today, even the new entrants, they have some familiarity with the idea of the ritual of rolling a joint or now smoking a vape pen. They've heard about edibles. But an infused drink will be such a heavy lift and in a constrained communications environment where you can't buy TV, you can't really buy Internet. How are how is the industry? And this is where my my skepticism from the drinks comes from is I don't know how the industry is going to do a good job of educating on this. So you're going to you're you're going to spend money to try and create a whole new category when you have well-established categories and consumers who are habituated to their use. That, that's right. And, you know, you, I, you asked me my, my, the previous question, you asked what's my favorite product. And, and I, I, my mind went to edible product because that's the topic we were, we were talking about. But I agree with you. If, if I were to restate my, my answer, absolutely. My favorite, my favorite product is, pure cannabis flower. I like to roll a joint and I like to enjoy it with friends. There's no question about that. That to me is number one. And that's where the culture is and where it comes from. And, and, uh, and that's going to be around for a long time. The, on the edible side, uh, edibles right now, you know, they are a big part of the marketplace. I'd say 10 to 15% of California's market are, in, are edibles. Um, that's a, that's a, a big slice for a single category. Uh, and then beverages are not really here yet, you know, sub 1%, but they're coming. And I think the challenge around uh, beverages and edibles in general, yes, is education. And we have limited means by, by which to educate. We have industry magazines, trade magazines, industry rags that, um, well, hey, you're preaching to the choir in those magazines, so that's not an effective means for education. Uh, you know, we can't take out large uh, uh, TV or digital ads yet, um, but I, mean, I do heck, see a lot of that We tried to buy the so first I, Super Bowl ad last year, right? So that. Yep, that's right, uh, and yep. So that didn't happen. So, but but it's that's slowly going to change. If you focusing just on the product itself, let's focus on beverages for a second. Uh, beverages are are social and, and inherently social. You go to a friend's house, you bring a you know bring a case of beer, or you bring a bottle of wine, and you enjoy it together. Uh, that is 
that's how cannabis beverages are going to be treated and going to be consumed is in a social setting. But that sets up a, a perfect storm, uh, you know, a, a problem. That's a problem because if you're taking a, a beverage, if you're having a beverage that has a long onset, let's say it takes you a half hour to even start feeling the initial effects of the beverage and you're in a social setting, it's so easy to just open a beverage and have another one with a friend and then open a beverage and have another one with a friend and you haven't felt anything yet. That's a, a big problem. So when I know the beverages were we're working on and and because we, we will be releasing a line here with I'd say in the next six months uh, the beverages we're working on they not only need to be taste good and shelf stable and not be cloudy and have you know a bunch of uh, crap floating around in them and sediment at the bottom it has to be a nice beverage but it needs to be rapid onset I firmly believe it needs to be rapid onset you need to if you take a cannabis beverage you should feel it in five to ten minutes I think that's Good for the consumer because uh, you know then you're getting the effects you want, and it's safe for the consumer if they feel it sooner, so that it prevents overconsumption. So, uh, yeah, I love your blog first of all. So, thanks for being one of the the companies out there that actually keeps up with the blog. <laughs> I think it's refreshing. Um, so, and we were I was doing a little bit of reading on the your um, relationship or your partnership with um, Oakland's Cannabis Equity Program. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so the uh, the equity program here in in Oakland uh, is is one of the first, or actually the first in the country. Um, uh, we more commonly now refer to it as the social justice program or the social equity program, um, and that program is is being repeated not only in other cities in California, but it's also being echoed uh, elsewhere in the country. And what the, the goal of the social equity program is, is to help to uh, reconcile the, and, 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 and somehow fix the, the, the problems from the war on drugs. The fact that certain populations were persecuted at a, at a higher rate than others and, and have been marginalized and not been able to enter the cannabis industry. So Oakland was a, was a leader. The city of Oakland, I, I don't take credit in this, the city of Oakland was a leader in pushing that forward. Um, it was a. I've been operating in Oakland for over 10 years now. It was uh, so when I when I participated in in the you know the trying to figure out how to implement this program, uh, it was it was tough. You're located in Northern California right now, and and Cal, and PG&E are doing these rolling blackouts. How how do you prepare for something like that from a you know a a, a a business planning or business continuity perspective? Uh, to be honest, you don't. Uh, <laughs> and how much time in advance did you get noted or how much uh, advance notice did you guys get? Cause I re only remember hearing about it like a couple of days ago. That's right. Yeah. It's just a, a couple of days notice at the most. Um, and then if you try to go and get a generator, uh, you know, everybody's uh, doing a mad scramble to get generators and then try to get a generator to, you know, to operate uh, a few hundred thousand square feet of in indoor cultivation plus a manufacturing facility. It's just, it, it just doesn't work. So, you know, the best laid plans for us really just lead to, uh, we just go dark for a couple of days, uh, un unfortunately. So, we need to make sure the plants are healthy, the plants are still alive, and that you know, no, no, no bad. Is there insurance for that? That's a good question. There, you can get crop insurance in this space. Um, we don't. We we purpose 
likely, uh, you know, uh, have elected not to have crop insurance because the payout terms are just so uh, restrictive. Uh, you know, you have to you have to prove so much in losses. That's hard to do. Who's going to audit the amounts? Uh, so no, we we do not have crop insurance. And whether that would cover power outages versus some other like theft or or some other uh, catastrophic loss, I'm not quite sure. And it's, and it's not like PG&E is an act of God. It's they've <laughs> made the decision to do it. So that's right. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. It's problematic. So, uh, you know, if anything goes wrong around here, we just blame it on PG&E right now. So that that's good. We have a scapegoat. I'm always a scapegoat, by the way. I'm always. Okay. <laughs> so before we got, um, we got off track on, um, blaming PG&E for everything. Um, <laughs> so, so let's go back to the, um, the social, uh, justice component there. Um, and what you guys are doing in the space. And, and basically, you know, you were saying that you're, you need to give away basically a chunk of your company and how, how kind of hard it was to, to do this. And that's kind of where we left off. Okay, great. Okay. Thank you. Um, yeah. So Nug has been always been supportive of the, the idea of social justice and, and, and the, again, the, the difficulty was trying to figure out how to do it in a way that's going to work and be sustainable and actually provide benefits uh, to to under underserved communities. So it was it took us about a year to negotiate with the city and really you know brainstorm at the city and figure out ways to do this. And what the outcome was is what we now call the social equity incubator program. And and what we do for that is we uh, here at NUG we incubate six uh, social equity uh, qualified applicants. Uh, they're actually groups, so six different groups, um, and we give each one of those groups a one, it's actually a 1,200 square foot greenhouse, so very sophisticated light deprivation, light augmentation, automated greenhouse, very nice systems, and they get to occupy that greenhouse for three years rent-free. Now that that in alone right there that meets the letter and the the, the letter of the law the ordinance for the social justice program and that allows uh, them to operate and that allows us to operate in the city of Oakland. We've then taken it further and what we're trying to meet is actually the spirit and the intent of the ordinance. And so instead of just saying here's your space, good luck, see you in three years. We are working daily with with our social equity partners. We uh, train them on the job. They've been interning with us uh, in, in, while they're not while their greenhouses are being constructed. Uh, they're learning the ins and outs of the business. They're learning branding. They're learning the economics uh, around uh, sales and accounts receivable. Uh, you name it. We are we are open. If if one of the applicants says, "Great, I've been doing cloning for the last three months. I'd like to work to something work on something else," we give them that opportunity and we train them up so that when they do actually start running their own business, which is going to we're going to have a ribbon cutting here, uh, I'd say within the next month, uh, they're when they start running their own businesses, they're going to know how to do that. Can you talk about failure? What it's meant to you in your career and how it's informed you. Um, as a successful entrepreneur now? Sure. Um, any entrepreneur is going to tell you you're going to fail and you're going to fail a lot. And then you're going to finally, you know, if you're just looking for that one success. And I would say I've, I've, I personally have been fortunate. I haven't had large failures, nothing catastrophic, but I fail every day. 
I fail every day. My team fails every day. And we just learn, we learn from that. Um, you know, we had some issues around our sales team uh, about a year and a half ago. Our sales team was getting lackadaisical. They weren't, uh, uh, they weren't representing the brand outward. They weren't very well. They weren't managing accounts very well. Our AR was going through the roof. That was huge. That could have become catastrophic to us. It could have degraded the brand and it could have hurt our finances just significantly. So that was a, a minor failures that just kept adding up and, and we wanted to avoid this catastrophe. And so we just pivot, you know, we, we uh, fire people when we need to, we hire talent when we need to. And in that case, we hired a, uh, a, a new uh, VP of sales from, uh, comes from craft beer. And he spent the last year rebuilding our sales team and rebuilding our, our presence in the marketplace. So, you know, to, to your question about failure, uh, it's just, you, you have to fail. You have to fail, but you need to be quick in getting yourself up and finding a solution. And to me, that's the true uh, path to success for any entrepreneur is to allow yourself to iterate and to fail and just pick yourself up and move forward quickly. You guys, like we talked about, are, are operating in the state of California, which um, is a pretty saturated marketplace. Do you think that there is still room for, for new market entrants? Absolutely. I, I truly, absolutely believe that. And you use the word saturated marketplace. There's some truth in that, but I'd say the, satura the saturation is because of market constriction. Uh, we uh, Two years ago in California, there was over 3,000 dispensaries in the state. Right now, uh, it, was, it was worse. Uh, we, we had about 250 in January, for, around January of 2018, and it's grown now. There's about 700 dispensaries in the state, but that's still considerably less than the 3,000 that there were a couple years ago. So that market constriction has uh, created uh, or, or exacerbated the the uh, the saturation of the marketplace, and that's done. That's just been extremely problematic for uh, for the industry in general. It's made it challenging to innovate and get new products on the market because the, the shelves are constricted by just the, the more uh, you know day to day products like flowers and pre rolls and vapes. Uh, and what else? It, the constriction in the marketplace has done is it's uh, made for a thriving uh, illicit market. It's estimated today in California that for every dollar spent in the regulated market, two to three dollars are spent in the illicit market. So that you know that's ex extremely problematic uh, when your illicit market is is twice as big as your regulated market, and that's really been a problem for innovation and uh, new brands and new new companies and new products coming to market. But to answer your question directly, I do believe that there is room in this space. And I believe now um, the, the room for in, in the industry is for very laser focused companies to come in and produce one very good product or one very good service and focus on that and not worry about all of the uh, other elements around that. So for example, yes, I'm a vertically integrated business I've been doing this for 10 years. I had to build my vertical and we're going to maintain our vertical integration. But if I were to enter the market today, I would not do that. 
And so I advise people when they ask me, how do I come into the, into the marketplace? How do I come into the cannabis marketplace? I advise them to look at the landscape, find out what you're most interested in and what you're best, best at and focus right there and build a very strong product or a very strong service. And there is a lot of room for in the market for that today. Well said. Thank you. Um, last question. The, you know, the media has shifted the way it covers the industry from, you know, kind of like laughing at it from behind, you know, its fingers to um, looking at it with awe as it has grown. And now it is a, they're taking a harder look at it. If you were able to get, you know, the San Francisco Chronicle or the Wall Street Journal to write one story and not about you, but just what is the most underreported story in the media? What are, what are we, what is everybody missing? Well, I'm going to give you a teaser for the art for the op-ed that I am preparing. How's that? I, I want to write this op-ed. Tease, tease away. <laughs> and this is not focused on me. This is not focused on on Nug. This is focused on on the industry, the state of things. And the story that's not being told right now is, in fact, the state of things. The, and what I mean by that is nobody's telling the overarching story of what is going well and and more importantly, what's going wrong in California. And there's so, people are focusing on small things. People are focusing on on, on banking. People are, are focusing on uh, um, the, the illicit market. Right now, a lot of people are focusing on vapes, on vaporizing and the health and public health around vaporizing. But nobody's tying all of those and others together in an overarching story that says, Look, here's what's happening in California. We have a, a market that was, you know, uh, hundreds of millions of dollars in size before it even became regulated. The regulations set up a two-tiered structure where there's local control and state control, and the right hand is not talking to the left. We have far fewer dispensaries now than we did a couple years ago, and they're not opening at a fast enough pace. We have uh, illicit market that is thriving. It's growing and it is thriving to the point where brands are spinning out of the illicit market right now. You should see the 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 sophistication of the packaging in the illicit market. It, it'll blow your mind. Uh, and then that's leading to things such as directly that the, the counterfeit products and, the, and the, the packaging in the illicit market is leading directly to this vape crisis that we have right now, which people are buying what they think are branded vaporizers on the on the and, and tested vaporize, vaporizers on the illicit market, and they're not. And some of those, many of those don't even have real cannabis in them, and that's a public health crisis. So, the you know, the, again, I'm, I'm still framing this, but there's this overarching picture where regulations and enforcement of the regulations, uh, or lack thereof, is creating this perfect storm that is now trickling down to a public health issue. And we need to get people to spend their money in regulated stores so that the new stores can open, so that uh, public the public health is, is controlled, and that so that the, the wheels of the industry can start spinning again and innovation can start picking up again and we can get to where we all want to be. Thank you. Great answer. Yeah. I'm excited to read this. Yeah, me too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We'll make sure that we post if it um, if it pops before this show. We'll make sure we post a link in the show notes. If not, we'll be tweeting it out. Great. Yep. Um, can you tell us where we can find you? Uh, social handles, like sure. where do you want us to point people to? 
Yeah, sure. So uh, you can find Nug products at almost any. We're in about 60% of the stores in California. So please ask for Nug products by name. Uh, go to your local dispensary and ask for us. We're probably on those shelves. Uh, you can also find us at Nug.com. And we are uh, pretty prominent on Instagram with the handle at Nug. Thank you so much for your time. Much appreciated. Our thanks to John Oram from Nug. Check them out at nug.com and make sure to check out their very excellent blog. Um, and then also on Instagram at nug. As always, if you want to chat with us, you can find us on Twitter at the underscore green rush or on Instagram at green rush underscore podcast or drop us an email at green rush at KCSA. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast in your favorite podcatcher. One take Shay. Cannabis! Cannabis!